Good morning and welcome to worship again. A special word of welcome, a greeting to those of you joining us by video right now. Some of you are in our contemporary service or joining us online or on TV, and I'm honored, we're glad that you are here with us, that we're all learning from God's word together and growing together in the way of Jesus. We're on this journey together. We're in the third leg of a long journey that we're taking together called Restored. We are learning to be restored by the power of God's spirit at work in our hearts, and now especially also at work in our community, forming us to be a good and beautiful community in Christ together. And today we are learning about one way of being a good and beautiful community in Christ together, one that is particularly challenging for us. We are learning about our call to unity together in the community of Christ, following Jesus' love as it leads us across every divide. And this is a challenge for us. Uh, this challenge marked me in a new and deeper way about two and a half years ago. I was leading a group from this church to Israel. We were traveling in Israel and Judea and in Galilee. We're actually doing, taking another trip in about a half a year, if any of you would like to go along on this trip. We were on that trip in Bethlehem in the south in Judea, and we visited a place called the Church of the Nativity. It's a place where some people believe marks the very spot where Jesus was born. And there's a church built over that spot, kind of over history. Stuff tends to get higher. The original things are down lower and stuff gets built on top. And this Church of the Nativity is sort of co-owned, or it's probably fairer to say dividedly owned, by the Eastern Orthodox Church and by the Roman Catholic Church. And you begin, or we began, by going into the Orthodox side of this church, and up at the front, kind of like at the front of this sanctuary where the altar would be, you go around to the right side and then down some steps underneath. There are some tunnels underneath this sanctuary too, but we don't think Jesus was born there. You went, really we don't, in White Bear Lake. And we go down the tunnels there in Bethlehem, and there's a spot down there that's marked on the ground. They've covered it with marble now, which would be nothing like it was when Jesus was beautiful marble. And there's a star on the ground. I, brought a, I took a picture. In fact, we brought a picture along here. You can see that is marked as the spot under an Eastern Orthodox church where many people believe this is likely to have been the location where Jesus was born. And we took some pictures and came back up. And then we walked around the outside of the building and entered the other side, which is the side that's owned by the Roman Catholic Church. And we walked down some steps in the tunnel underneath the altar in the front of that church and got down there. And it, when I got down there, I took another picture. This is a picture. If I could show the next slide, right there is kind of this wall. There's some, you can't see them from here. There's some Greek and Latin inscriptions that are on there. A little bit of lighting has been installed. And I was kind of pondering the inscriptions that were there and thinking about this when all of a sudden I realized where I was. I was down in the same tunnel under the church where Jesus is supposed to have been born probably about eight or 10 feet from that spot on the other side of the wall, right? I was like, we are so divided from one another. We get along with each other so little. We have to fight with each other so much that we built a wall right up the middle of the spot where our Lord is supposed to have been born. And that just, that just depressed me. I got so sad. I kind of prayed a little down in there and I lamented and for those of you who are on the trip with me, if you remember me being in a bad mood the rest of that day, I have to apologize. Like, but I was just, and I thought about our own condition. I thought about the state of the church. I don't want to just cast stones at the people who own this church building, but I thought about our own condition. And we are so divided from one another. And that's one of the ways that I think that God's children on earth, the family that Jesus makes us, has divided us one from another is across lines of different denominations and church bodies. There are thousands of different denominations in the United States and around the world. 
many of which believe they're the only true worshipers of God in the world. A lot of us are going to be in for some big surprises at some point in the future. We're divided against one another. In fact, we've been doing some focus groups as part of our process of considering a new name for our church. And I don't want to talk to you about the name right now. But in those focus groups, we've been asking people outside our church, because if our aim is to communicate clearly to people outside our church the gospel of Jesus that's proclaimed here on the inside, we say, let's stop pretending we know what other people think, and let's just ask them. And so we've started some focus groups of people who are not attenders of First Lutheran. And one of the major perceptions we found, which has been shown in studies already before this, one of the major perceptions they have of Christians is that we're just divided from one another and against one another. And the Lutherans are against the Methodists, or against the Catholics, or against the Baptists. We live in this state of division. We're also, I think it's important for us to acknowledge, especially at this point in history, in this day and age, how divided we are from one another across racial and cultural lines. And this is true both in the church and in our wider world. There's a famous quotation that was ascribed to Martin Luther King Jr. And I don't know whether it's something Dr. King actually said or sometimes famous people have quotes attributed to them that other people said. But supposedly he said that the most divided hour in America is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. The most segregated hour in America is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Now our worship schedule is 9 and 10.30, so we're probably in the clear on that one. <laughs> nah, we're not in the clear at all on that, right? And not only does church continue to struggle with this, and, and I don't know, I don't mean to say that I think we all figured this out in some conscious and purposeful way. We said, let's have church this way without people who are different from us. And yet still, it has happened among us. And I think at this point in history, especially, our world is divided along similar lines. And instead of being a, a good and beautiful community that embodies an alternative hope for God's vision for us in Jesus, we mostly reflect the same divisions that are already functioning in our world rather than being a witness to a better way. And we struggle with this, a deep struggle for us. But I don't think we are without hope in this. I don't think we are without resources. I don't think we're without teaching or with power to live differently. And what I'd like to share with you this morning are some words from Scripture, some of the teaching and example of Jesus' own life, some of the teaching and example of the earliest Christians who pioneered a different way on this, and I believe that as we listen to these teachings and see this example, we can be empowered by the very Spirit of God, by the very Spirit of Jesus Christ, to live together in a good and beautiful community in a different and more hopeful sort of way. I want to begin by explaining just a few things from that passage, that prayer of Jesus that we heard read in both of our worship venues here this morning. It's a prayer that's written down in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Jesus was praying this in some of the last hours of his life on this earth. Can you imagine what you'd be praying for when you knew that your hours were numbered, they were short? This was among the top things on Jesus' heart as he prayed in those critical hours. Jesus began to pray for his disciples, those whom he knew personally, who were beloved to him and to one another. But then in the latter part of the prayer, he begins this way. He says, you know, my prayer is not for them alone. I'm not only praying for them. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. In case you're wondering who Jesus is praying for, it's you, right? Jesus is praying for you and me, for us, for all the generations of Christians who would believe in him through the testimony of the first disciples and apostles. Jesus prays for us that all of them, that all of us might be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you catch that? Jesus is praying for our unity for a purpose. 
And that purpose is so the world would see how God makes us one across the lines that would otherwise divide us. And in response to seeing that witness, believe in the power of Jesus. In Jesus' prayer, he prays as if our oneness would be our witness. Our oneness would be our witness. We're not actually doing so awesome on this at this point, but that's what Jesus prayed for us. He said, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then again, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prays that our oneness would be our witness. And then he shows us where our oneness will come from. Because it doesn't come from natural human causes. We don't do very well with that on our own. Instead, Jesus prays that our oneness would come from his oneness, from the oneness of God, from our relationship with him. Jesus in his prayer says to us that the more that we are in Christ, the closer we draw to God, and the more that God is in us, the more we will be one with one another. Which is a real challenge for us because I think sometimes Maybe some of us as individuals, maybe some Christian groups or denominations. What kind of happens is the more that we think we're close to God, the more that we are certain that we are right because we're like God and we know God better than everybody else, the more that we divide from one another. And Jesus said it would be just the opposite. As we are in Christ, as we come to know God, the fruit of the Spirit in us, the fruit of that relationship would not be division from one another, but would be unity with one another. And that this oneness would be a witness to the world, to the power of God, to take those who are divided along in other ways and make them one. But Jesus not only prayed for this, Jesus lived this out. He showed us how this would work. There's a fairly famous incident from Jesus' life that happened uh, probably about a couple years before he prayed this prayer. And he and his disciples were down in the southern part of Israel, a place called Judea. And they were going to travel back up to what was basically kind of their home area in Galilee, which was in the north. Judea's in the south and Galilee's in the north. And in between Judea and Galilee is this area called Samaria. Now, Judea and Galilee are Jewish territory. They were good Jewish boys and girls grow up. Samaria in the middle is not a Jewish area. It's an area where the Samaritans live. And the Jews in the south and the Jews in the north and the Samaritans in the middle did not mix with one another. They were racially different and they resented one another and did not trust one another and sometimes were involved in violent conflict with one another. Let me offer you an analogy for a second about how this felt to them. Imagine that you are a white person. For many of you, this will not be hard. We're a majority white community around here. And let's imagine that you are having dinner with some friends. You're up here in the north. Let's imagine you were having dinner with some friends down in the south. Let's say straight across the diameter of town, maybe Edina or somewhere in the southwest metro. And there you are having dinner, and it gets to be the end of the night or the end of whatever event you're having, and it's time to come home again. There is a straight route that you could take, but there's also this very convenient loop that you could take that goes way out of your way, but it's a nice highway, and you could take this path called 494. It'll go across the south metro, it'll break to the north, it'll hit Woodbury along the way, coincidentally, and then loop around in something, it'll change names to 694, and arrive here in Galilee, uh, White Bear Lake, here in White Bear Lake. <laughs> There's another path that you could take. You could go up 35W or maybe Hiawatha. You could go up, you might go through the Phillips neighborhood. Maybe if you like that direction, you could go across Lake Avenue. Eventually, you maybe hit the east side of St. Paul if you come north a little bit and come home on Arcade or Payne or something like that. 
and you'll get to the same place. Jesus was in Edina, uh, Judea, and he said to his disciples, we're going through the city. We're going to take the straight route. They're like, no, no, we know the way. It goes out. No, nope, we're going right through here. And on the way, we're going to stop for a bite to eat in Frogtown. Right? Which is exactly what he did. On the way through, he stops at a local watering hole. Literally, it was a well where he stopped. <laughs> but there at the well, all was not well. And the person he met there knew it. He met a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritan woman knew this was not okay. Oftentimes, ethnic, racial, cultural minorities will know the rules of engagement better than those of us who don't have to think about them very often. And the woman says to him, how's this? How is it that you who are a Jewish man asks me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? It's not kosher. We don't do it that way. It's not okay. You're going to get in trouble for this. I could get in trouble for this. But Jesus engages her in conversation. And he learns her story. Now, being Jesus, he already knew her story. (laughs) But he asks her her story. And she shares with him the brokenness and the pain in her life. And then he shares the love of God with her. He embodies it for her here in relationship. He embodies love for her, testifies to her about the love of God for all people, that all people will come to know and worship God. He empowers her to go and use her voice to testify about God to other people in her town. And, they all, and many people come to know Jesus through her witness. This is the kind of thing that Jesus was praying about. And he showed us how he prayed with the actions of his life before he prayed with the words of his lips. Jesus' love crosses every divide. And we apprentice disciples of Jesus, we have a teacher and a master who shows us a different and more hopeful way to be community, a different way to share life together. This is what the power of Jesus and the poured out power of his Holy Spirit among us can and will do and invites us that we get to be a part of that. It's not only Jesus, though. It didn't stop with him. His followers got this. Not always that quickly. Honestly, sometimes things are hard, right? It takes us a while to change sometimes. But one of Jesus' early followers who got changed on this was a guy whom we now know as the Apostle Paul. Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles. His Jewish friends called him Saul the Pharisee. And God's call on Paul's life was to go and start interracial, multi-ethnic churches in the ancient world. Those of us who are Christians or readers of the Bible, we often think of him as the apostle to the Gentiles. That's what this was. Go from your people to different people and help them know the love of God also. And sometimes Paul encountered opposition in this mission. And he had to fight for this calling that he had. And sometimes he had to fight with other Christians about what God was doing among people who crossed these lines of division. And there's a little description of that in the letter he wrote to the Galatian church. And I want to read this to you. It's Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. In these verses, Paul got into a fight with the great other Christian leader whose name was Peter about this. Here in these verses, he's called Cephas. He had a different name in different contexts. When Cephas, also called Peter, came to Antioch, which was a city in Syria, which is one of the birthplaces for interracial, multi-ethnic Christianity in the first century. When he came there, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, and James was one of the Jewish Christian leaders who didn't like this mixing. Before that, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back. Right? He was under pressure. And he began to separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Would you ever like to belong to a group called the circumcision group? But that was the name of the people who believed in the covenant of circumcision and the distinction of the Jewish people from the Gentile people. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, 
Why is this called hypocrisy? So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. This is why. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, that's what their behavior was betraying, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul said that your breaking of fellowship from your brothers and sisters in Christ because of your ethnic divisions, that that is a betrayal of the truth of the gospel. I think for many of us, we would think that the gospel is one thing and how we live that out, how we cross racial divisions, how we cross the things that divide us, that's like sort of a nice add-on package. It's a pretty good implication. It's sort of an optional extra. But Paul said, by your failing to live out the unity of the body of Christ together, you are betraying the very truth of the gospel. And I think if we disagree with that, then our gospel is smaller than Paul's was. He was building these communities of oneness in Christ across these divisions. And he wrote some really powerful and famous summaries of this teaching. One of them comes about a chapter and a half later in the same letter he was making this argument. In Galatians 3.28, Paul famously wrote, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one. Where are you one? In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, you are a different people. There you are a colony of God's kingdom for the sake of the world. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to stop being Jewish or Gentile, but it means that it makes no difference in the body of Christ. He said, maybe a little bit less famously, but similarly, he wrote this to the Colossians, lest you think it was just sort of a one-off crazy idea he had in one place. In Colossians 3.11, Paul wrote, here, where? Here, in the community of Christ, in the church. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. These lines that otherwise divide us, they get erased together in the community of Christians. That's what God is doing in Christ, making us to be a different people. Now, you might have noticed that in arguing for this, Paul had to argue. He set himself against other Christian leaders, and he sought truth with them. Unity doesn't have to happen at the expense of telling the truth, of seeking the truth, of trying to persuade one another, of trying to find the truth yourself and finding out where you're wrong and finding out how we can all be right together. At one point, some people in the early Christian church began to gather up behind certain leaders. And you might think that Paul would be flattered to say, well, there's a Paul group, there's a Paul party, people are following me in this. On the contrary, Paul thought that was a disaster. And one of the places where this began to happen was in the ancient city of Corinth. And so I, I want to read you what Paul said to the Corinthians about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He wrote to them as they were beginning to divide themselves up around certain leaders who disagreed with one another. He said, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. See who they were? They were family, right? I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another in what you say. I want you to come together, that there would be no divisions among you, but that you'd be perfectly united in mind and thought. That's the goal, and we're going to work toward it. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, that was one of the individual house churches in ancient Corinth, some of them have informed me that there are quarrels among you. There are divisions among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, better than all of you, I follow Jesus, unlike you. I follow Christ. And Paul said, is Christ divided? Was Paul 
crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? If he were writing in the 21st century, I expect the next question would be, are you kidding me? It can't go on like this. This is not right. Christ is not divided. We can't let the body of Christ be divided. How are we being divided from one another? The scriptures teach us, and I believe the Holy Spirit empowers us for a good and beautiful life together, for being different, and one of the ways that we are different is in our unity. And as we would begin to apply this teaching to our lives, I think we have to acknowledge that where we are. You can only ever take next steps from where you actually are, right? You can't take next steps from where you wish you were. You can't think that where you wish you are is so far from where you are that it's no, worth, no bother taking any next steps. And you can't ever judge somebody else for not taking next steps from where you wish they were. You can only ever start where you are. And I think that where we are is a community that experiences a lot of division. On the one hand, we are divided across denominational lines. We live in an era and have for hundreds of years lived in an era of deeply divided Christianity, deeply divided denominationalism. And we can take next steps, baby steps maybe, from where we are. There's some things we can celebrate. You know, we used to have, we still have, but it's different now. We used to have this great big community garage sale. We just celebrated one. We just shared one about a month ago. And we'd invite thousands of people from our larger community to join us here on this First Lutheran's garage sale. And then a few years ago, a leadership, our leadership of that event invited the Methodist Church to join us. And now, when thousands of unchurched people come here as part of the Manitou Days celebration, people from our area, they come, we invite them to cross the street and cross the denominational line that runs down the middle of Pine Street and go next door and receive a Christian slice of pizza from the Methodists right over there. Now, are we exactly the same as the Methodists? No, we're not. Are there conversations that we can continue to have? Oh, yeah, let's continue to do that. But when there are thousands of people here, we can represent our oneness in Christ, that our oneness would be part of our witness at least one day a year. 364 to go. Let me give you another example. There's, I don't know how many of you know the name of Chris Kimston. You might not know that name. Chris is our morning custodian here in this building. And Chris grew up in an ELCA Lutheran church in Iowa. He came north and crossed the great dividing line south of Albert Lee, entering the state of Minnesota. He crossed the line. Jesus' love crosses every divide. And he came north here, and he began to attend Bethel Seminary, which is a primarily Baptist-influenced seminary. Now he has a part-time job working at an LCMC, Lutheran congregation, but he's a pastoral intern, like Danny Householder is here. He's a pastoral intern at an evangelical covenant church plant in West St. Paul. This covenant church worships in an old Catholic church building, and that church, this evangelical covenant church, was originally planted by Berean Baptist Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. And when they gather for worship, they read the same scriptures that we read. And they confess the same Apostles' Creed that we confess. And they share the same Lord's Supper that we share. And at the end of the service, they follow the same Jesus out in the world, empowered by one spirit, children of one heavenly Father, to love and serve our world together. And I see God at work in this. You might think that poor Chris has a split personality or something. But I see God at work in this, and, and I can cheer for that when our oneness can be part of our witness. 
One baby step that we can begin taking again here is something that you may have noticed in our prayers already in worship or we'll see in our worship services. It used to be not that long ago that on a somewhat regular basis, we would pray by name for other Christian churches in our area. And we pray for them, and I pray for them in my morning prayers too, and I always want to be careful when we pray for other churches, not to begin to pray that they would see the light and be as truly wonderful as we are. <laughs> but to pray the same prayer for others that I would pray for our church. And I do this in these exact words every time. God, make us faithful, and God, make us fruitful. Make us faithful, and we can all pray for that for ourselves and for others. Make us faithful, make us fruitful. But I don't think we would be able to be responsible to this teaching this morning without also acknowledging that we are not only divided along denominational lines, but we're also divided along racial lines. And I'll tell you what, as an action-oriented person who likes to see things get done and solve problems and take ground, I would love it. And honestly, for most of this week and leading up to this week, I, was, I, had, I really was, I'm going to call it a temptation. I wanted to announce to you that we were going to launch some new program or invite you into some new initiative. We're, but the truth is, we're just not ready for that. That's not the next step from where we are, right? And I, I kind of think that the world doesn't need some majority white congregation in the suburbs to launch into some half-baked crusade. I want to propose a, a humbler start to this. And I take this actually from something that I was reading recently. It was uh, something I learned from an African-American Christian whose name is Theon Hill. And he wrote an article recently in the magazine Christianity Today. And he offered to his white Christian brothers and sisters some uh, suggestions, some steps for creating unity across the lines of racial divide. And I'm just going to share with you the first couple. You can look up the rest if you'd like in Christianity Today. But you can only take next steps from where you are. And the first couple of steps that he suggested was, the first one was, listen to and learn from one another. And if you're part of a majority culture, spend a lot of time listening to and learning from the stories and life experiences of those whose backgrounds are different from you. Because as much as you might like to think that you do, you don't actually know what it's like to be somebody other than you. You spent all your life in this body, in these shoes, on these feet, in your life story. And you can learn by listening to, empathetically, sympathetically, quietly sometimes, asking questions, not always answering right away, listening to and learning from the experiences of others. And this, I think, is Christian behavior. We could call this love your neighbor by listen. Listen to your neighbor as you would have them listen to yourself. The second step that he suggested has to kind of go along with it because I don't know, but maybe a lot of you just now, if you thought about applying that concretely to your life, you went, and who exactly would I listen to? What relationship do I have in which I could do that? And his second suggestion to partner up with that would be reach across the divides at a personal level, build bridges, not divisions, with people that you know at work, with people in your neighborhood, if there's anybody in your neighborhood that represents any background that's different than your own. Maybe as Christian communities, look for ways. You don't have to necessarily reinvent yourself, but are there ways to do what God has called you to do in ways that embody the unity of God's church instead of embodying the fracturing of God's church? I'm reminded in this of a story that was told to me. A, a friend of a friend once was, was working in a church and was invited to offer some counsel, some advice to another church, another church that was trying to become more diverse than it was. And 
he came and listened to their efforts, and they were wanting to invite people into the life of their church, into the worship of their church, who came from different backgrounds than most of them came from. And he came, and you know, I said, I applaud that. I think that's really godly. I appreciate that. But they found that it wasn't going very well. People didn't want to come or didn't want to stay when they came. And he said, let me just ask you a question. I applaud what you're doing, but maybe if it's not working very well, let me ask you this challenging question. These very people, friends, colleagues of yours that you're inviting into your church or into worship, how many of them have you ever invited into your home? How many of, you, how many of them have you ever invited to dinner at your house? Because it might be that building relationship at that kind of authentic level would be the first step toward building a church, toward building a church family that reflects and is made up of those kind of relationships. Jesus' love crosses every divide. This is the kind of thing, not that Jesus just gives to us and says, take it seriously, do it. This is what God is up to. This is what the kingdom of God is like when Jesus came and said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's breaking into the world. I want you to pray for it. And you get to live it. You get to embody it. This is a big challenge, right? And it's not anything that's going to happen overnight. The divisions among us didn't appear overnight. They're not going to get solved overnight. And the truth is, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think we're going to learn it from our larger world, right? While our world is hungry for this and our world needs this, and there are good examples out there of people really trying to fight the good fight, nevertheless, I think the balance of history shows us, thousands of years of history show us that left to our own devices, the natural inclination of the human heart is to gather up with people who are like us and way too often, sadly and dangerously, to divide ourselves from people who are against us. But God has called us and empowered us for something different. He empowers us to be a different people in Christ. Because in Christ, the Bible says, here, not just anywhere, but here among the people of God, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian, male and female, black and white. For Christ is all, and Christ is in all. And we are called to be and empowered to be. We are a different people in Christ a colony of God's one kingdom for the sake of the world. God, make it so. God, make it so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are one God and Father of all, and we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in us and among us, that you would build bridges of unity across the relationships in our own church family, that you would make us one and that people would see oneness and they would see your power and your love at work, that they would see love and respect and care and empathy in our relationships. And that God, that you would create unity broadly in our world, in your church around the world, that it would be a testimony to the world of a hope, of your hope, of your power to cross those lines that hurt us and break us and hurt your world. God, we pray that you would reassure our own hearts of your powerful love for us, that you have made us one with you, and that you can make us one with one another. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.